Listen, I wanted to uh, start by sharing a story with you guys. It's a story uh, about a, a server who happened to be down in uh, just south of here in Houston. The, the story goes like this. Um, last month in Houston, a server named Mark, Michael Garcia had had his patience stretched thin enough. I don't know if you've ever worked as a server in a restaurant, but that happens pretty regularly. Um, but after uh, the Castillos, a family... A couple, a family, that um, came in with their five-year-old child who had Down syndrome. When they sat in his section, another patron who was near the table said out loud, special needs children need to be special somewhere else. Though the Castillos heard none of it and therefore didn't do anything about it, Garcia himself, the server, rose to defend the one who couldn't defend himself. Garcia said to this man, I'm not going to be able to serve you, sir. But when the boy's mom found out about Garcia's actions, she was, of course, blown away by Garcia's character. She says, I was impressed that somebody would step out of their own comfort level and put their job on the line as well as to stand up for somebody who they didn't even know. A great story of a champion defending one who couldn't and didn't defend himself. And I think that we resonate with this story because we all know what it's like at some point in our lives to be helpless in the face of real threats. See, maybe not at a restaurant, but at some point or another, have you known what it's like to be defenseless and exposed? All semester long, we've been looking at the Old Testament. It's been said by more than one commentator, Bible teacher, that the Old Testament is really one story with two major themes in it. That they are this. It's either the story of God defending His people from outside threats, or, or it's the story of having to deal with His people's own wandering from and rebellion against Him. Tonight, we're going to consider a very famous passage that deals with the former. That is, God preserving His people from external threats. It is the story of the invading Philistine army threatening the security of God's people. How would they respond to such threats? More importantly, listen, how would God Himself respond to such threats? You see... His reputation was really at stake because He had so given Himself over to His people that as Israel fared, so did God's name and recognition fare. If Israel was wiped out, if they were defeated that day, the nations would have looked on and said, that Yahweh's a chump. He can't do anything. He can't even protect His own people that He promised that He would protect. So God's own glory, His own fame is at stake. This text shows us, y'all, that the real hero of the story is not you and me. That's going to be important in just a little bit. I'll tell you why. Instead, God, God Himself is the hero of this story because it is God Himself who defends and preserves His people. My hope for you tonight is that you will see God defending you, preserving you 
for Himself. And in light of this, I want us to begin to live our lives in a way about with radical trust and dependence upon Him. This text shows us three particular situations where God defends His people, and they are as follows. When they do not fight, when they will not fight, and then lastly, when they cannot fight. So when they do not, when they will not, and when they cannot fight. Again, my prayer is that you will leave here tonight astounded at the great grace of God and that you will give your life over to Him in increasing measure. So let's take a look. Let's see what I mean when I say that God is fighting for His people, particularly when they do not fight. So, we're taking a look then uh, at verses 16 and following in particular. So if you've got your uh, bullets in there, you want to keep your eye on that. And up. I want to explain this to you very quickly. You must understand a little bit of background that's going on before we get to this text. And there are two things you have to keep up with. First, you have to understand, you have to know, that even though Saul was the king of Israel at this time, he, two chapters earlier, in chapter 15, has been rejected as king. I'm going to read that in just a second. The kingship was now, as it were, going to be transferred to David upon Saul's death. The kingship was not yet his. It doesn't come out until 2 Samuel chapter 2. But David was chosen over Saul. Let's take a look at what I mean. If you've got your Bibles, you can write down these verses. If not, I'm going to read them to you. This is the prophet Samuel speaking to Saul himself. He says, I will not return with you, Saul, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And we see one chapter prior in 1 Samuel 16, we read this of the kingdom being given to David. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, he's talking about Saul right here, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then in verse 13, talking about David, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And it tells us that Samuel leaves. So here's the point. David is the king elect. While Saul's days are numbered, David is God's man. Even though Saul is still king, that's the first thing that you must know. Secondly, you have to notice somebody in this text as we read it is conspicuously silent in the face of Goliath's daily taunts. Did you notice who it was? It was King Saul. For 40 days, the text tells us, that Goliath has taunted the army of Israel. And a good king would have said, who the heck does this guy think he is? Armor-bearer, get me my sword, get me my armor, I'm going down there and we're going to deal with this once and for all. On day one, as soon as the homeboy would have opened up his mouth. It would have been over like that. One of them would have died. It may have been King Saul, but that's what a good king would have done. But their king, do you know what he did? He sat on his butt. 
and he didn't do anything. When he should have been the first one to bear his sword, imagine your champion, your defender, your king, you're in the army, and you're sitting there going to your boys, how many more days are we going to put up with this? How long is our king, our champion, going to sit on his bottom and do nothing? That's what it was like. My point is this. God Himself would be the one that would fight for His people through David, the better king. David was God's chosen man. You read this and you see how Saul did nothing. David is the one that is God's chosen representative to defend and preserve God's own army. King Saul was able. He had the troops. He had the numbers. But he did nothing. King Saul did absolutely zilch when he should have done everything. Instead, God rose up David. Why do I share this with you? Here's why. A little key point of application. At this point, you begin to see something very important about the story of David and Goliath. Here's what it is. We have a tendency, especially if you've grown up in church, to read this story, or if you've ever heard this story, if you didn't grow up in church, to read this story like this. David was courageous. He was a really courageous man in the face of great dangers and great evil. But... God rewarded His courage, and He will reward yours too. Go forth. Be like David. And with great faith and courage, you too can slay the giants in your life. So Goliath becomes a chemistry test. So Goliath becomes something very hard for you to beat. And that's the way we read this story. But I want to suggest something. In the end, the story isn't about you being courageous at all. Is that the way we're really supposed to read it? I don't think so. Here's why. Because if we look at David to be our example, we get in a pickle real quick. For if you know David's story, you know that upon becoming king, he eyes a married lady and abuses the power of his kingship to bed her. He impregnates her. And then, as he is king... Her husband, named Uriah, is one of David's top generals in his army. And to cover it all up, this is the sleazeball move that David does. He tells a higher ranking officer to put Uriah in the front lines. And do you know what that means? Imminent death. And in fact, he does die. But do you know what the whole plan and scheme was? To make it look like a cover-up. So now, which David are we supposed to be like? You see, are we supposed to be the courageous one? Are we supposed to be the the one who throws his best friends into the line of fire? That tears a family apart? This is the King David. How are we supposed to read this? Listen, I believe that what this text is telling us to see is that if you want to find your part in the story, look to a different character. Look to Saul. You see... Long-time followers of God can easily sit idle by and do nothing when they ought to be faithful to Him. But look, here's what I want you to see. God, by His grace, really does fight and defend and preserve His people even in the face of their own disobedience. We don't do the things that we ought. We don't say the things that we ought. We don't live as, that we ought, as we ought to, right? 
while you're here at TCU, like, have you seen your life gone off the tracks? Right? Are you harboring anger to one of your roommates or something like that? The story at its core is about God being the hero. Him raising up a leader to fight and defend His people on His own behalf when those who know better sit idle by and do nothing. At the heart of Christianity, therefore, is a God who does for you all of the things that you do not and that you should do. Do you believe that about Christianity? That's what's at the core of this message. And moreover, that God meets the standard for you through His representative, His deliverer. This isn't a be like David story. You know what type of story it is? This is an, oh shoot, I'm a Saul, now what story? This isn't a be like David story. This is an, oh shoot, I'm like Saul, now what story? This leaves us with a deeper question. Why does Saul, why does he do nothing? Why does he do it? Why in the world does he not go out and do this? The text tells us, and that's where we move to our second point, when God's people will not fight for themselves. My point here is brief. I want you to see that at multiple times in this story, in verse 1, in verse 16, in verse 20 and 21 in chapter 17, several times the army of the Philistines and the army of the Israelites draw up lines and nothing has happened. Why? We see it in verse 16 right there. For 40 days the Philistine army came forward and took its stand. But up in verse 12, we see, sorry, and um, I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere in here. I can't find it right now in my eyes and I've got to keep moving. The bottom line is, is that the people were afraid. That they were fearful. That they were scared. The reason he does not go is because he is scared. And you know what that means? That at the bottom line, the reason that he does not go, Saul does not, is because he actually doesn't want to go. Hang with me before you begin to go, what, did you just double talk me? Because that didn't make any sense. Let me show you something. I want you to see that what it means to actually be human, hang with me for a second, is that we always do what we most want. Let me say that again. We always do what our hearts most want. The reason that Saul did not go into that army was not because he wasn't able to. It's because deep down, he didn't want to. It's not because he had a brain fart and he forgot how to fight. It's because at the level of the heart, he didn't want to go fight. Let me illustrate this just a little bit when I say we always do what we most want. Okay, Take a scenario that's sadly more common in my home than I like telling on myself here, I'm not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. Take a time where I have been angry at my sweet wife, Laura, and where I have raised my voice and yelled at her. I look at that situation and I go, why do I do that? Why would I yell at her? I want peace with her. You see, I really don't want to yell at her, but I did. And the question is, why did I do it? I didn't want to yell at her, and yet I did. And here is why. Because, in my case, there was something else that I wanted more 
than peace with her. Do you know what it is? I want it to be right. So underneath this desire for peace with my wife was a more desirable desire, and that was to be a self-righteous jerk in that moment. And so, the desire for peace, when it meets with a deeper desire to be righteous, every time, peace will lose. And self-righteous jerk comes out. Let me press in a little bit. Hang with me because we might sting a little bit. Can I do things that I do not want to do? You may say, yeah, of course I did. Some guy held a gun to my face and he asked me for my wallet and I gave him my wallet and I didn't want to do that. Uh -uh -uh. Do you know what's going on deeper? Deeper than you wanting to give him your wallet was you wanting to preserve your life. How does this get specific for us? Hang with me. There's a girl at TCU. She's a sophomore. I'm making this up. She would name herself a Christian, but she goes out and gets wasted every weekend. When she sobers up on Saturday mornings, she goes, why did I do that? I don't want to do that. What is it? Why am I... I can't imagine me doing it. Here's why. Because deep down, there's a greater want. In this case, it's the approval and the affections of the senior guy. And because his approval in that moment is the most desirable thing to her heart, getting his attention by getting wasted, so to speak, wins out honoring and pleasing God all the time. What is it for you? Think about it like this. He's soon to graduate. The stress of finding the best job with the best pay, with the best opportunity for advancement is what he really wants. But doing so means that he sacrifices everything to get it especially his relationship with the Lord. Why would he do such a thing? Because in that moment, the deeper, more intense, most supreme desire of his heart is not Jesus in that moment, but it is the paycheck. It is the status. It's the power that's given with the job. Why is this sobering for us? I want you to sit still for just a second and think about this. Do you realize this about yourself? But at every turn, at every turn, billions of times a day, when you find something in your life that goes against your love for God, it is because you actually want that thing more than you want God in that moment. Sobering, isn't it? Because it means... There's something wrong with me inside. It means that I'm a selfish man. It means that I'm a lustful man. It means that I'm a greedy man. It means that anger is not something out there, but anger is something in here. It means that I'm really selfish. And that I need a deliverer. And the good news is, is that even when we will not fight, God in His grace to us still provides a deliverer. Still provides somebody that will preserve and defend His people. And He does the same for you. Does that encourage you tonight? Because look, let's get rid of the game. Let's stop for a second. Why do you go get wasted on Saturday nights when you know you shouldn't? Here's the answer. 
Ready? Let's open up the hearts. Because I want to. Why can you not stop sleeping around, so to speak? Because I want to. Why do you love money more than... Because I want money more than Jesus. I don't know of anything that says a more honest assessment about who we are than Christianity. So, here's the question for you. What do we do? Is there any hope for us? Because it sounds like we're enslaved. It sounds like we can't choose God. And that's exactly right. We can't choose Him. We need Him to come liberate us. And that's where we go now in this third point. Lastly, God defends and fights for His people when they cannot fight for themselves. In His free and unmerited grace, look with me in verses 48 and 49. That's where we're going. God sends David as the champion of His people to go and fight for them. Not only does God fight for people who do not fight and for those who will not fight, but He does so for people out of their own inability who cannot fight. Saul and the army were paralyzed by their own fear and their own self-absorption. But a battle still loomed in front of them. It wasn't going away just because of their own disobedience and heart's desire for other things. And so David walks down into the valley with no armor on and slays the enemy of God's people. The text tells us in those verses that David takes Goliath's own sword and decapitates him. Something that's stark for us to see, but something that drives home the point that the battle belongs to the Lord. Why does this matter for you and me? Here's why it matters. Because at the moment that we are not able to be honest about who we are and about what's really in here about our hearts, I want you to see, I want you to see for just a second this like, I know it's Lord of the Rings reference, so just pardon my geekdom for a second. I want you to see the bright beaming light of Gandalf coming into Helm's Deep, bringing rescue and bringing deliverance. I want you to see that. Because you... Look, where are you in this battle? You're the dude in the back row. You're Saul who's sitting on his butt. You're the Philistine army who's actually willfully set yourself up over against God. And yet, a deliverer comes to rescue you. To defend you. So that sounds... Weird, Ryan, that you would use the language of defense. Well, not really. If you know your New Testament, listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that our battle, we wage wrestling, we war against not flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the dark things that we can't see. Moreover, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we learn that we have a real enemy. His name is the devil. And he seeks and prowls around like a lion, ready to chew you up. Who do you think it is that defends you? As corny and as hokey as that may sound, that's what's real. That is what's real. And Jesus defends the helpless 
We need to be liberated. We need to be rescued. And so God actually comes into our very hearts and liberates us to love Him. Here is the hope. God delivers those who are helpless. And He promises, this is staggering, He promises to actually change our hearts so that they actually want the right things. The things that are pleasing to Him. This is the good news. That God has promised to change you precisely when you cannot change yourself. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 very quickly. And I'm going to read this to you even if you don't have it. I want you to listen to what He has to say. I want you to see that God is deeply and intimately committed to changing your heart to liberating it such that you would actually love all of the right things and not the wrong things. One six. here it is. And I am sure of this, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. There's your promise, my friends. That God is not done with you yet. That He has promised to set your heart free that you might love Him and that you might enjoy Him, that you might go after Him instead of turning back in onto yourself. So how does God do this? This is where I want to end tonight. How will our hearts finally be liberated? And here it is. By seeing. By seeing a greater David. By seeing great David's greater son that we've already sang about tonight. And the battle that he has won on our behalf. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is talking about David. And when he does, he says this about a greater David that would come. Read with me from the slides. Brothers, this is Peter talking. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He foresaw and spoke about all about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, that, that the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, sorry, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, talking about this King Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that is the Holy Spirit on you, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, David says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies your footstool. And here's the stamp. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you have crucified. In other words, y'all, listen. There was another warrior king who would come. In the person of Jesus, we get another king who goes into his own valley, unarmored, and doesn't walk out. And through his death and resurrection, he conquers the real enemies that you have, namely death itself. You see, he fights for you. Don't you see it? But if he weren't, What evils were to become you? What would take you over? But as the hymn writer has said, because of His great love, 
we are not overcome. All of your deepest fears, Jesus has dealt with. He is your champion. And knowing this about Jesus' kingliness for you, you are finally able to walk out into the world onto that campus loving Him and living on mission for His purposes. In Jesus, God gives a deliverer because that is what we need. Listen to me. I really want you to lean in here. We don't need an example. We need a Savior. That's why you would never read this text as David is my example and I'm just going to try to be like him. We don't need something to just get us over the hump spiritually. God did not give us a guru to follow as if all we needed were advice. God did not give us a teacher to listen to as if all we needed were more information. God did not give us a moral example to follow as if all we needed was some help on how to live a good life. God gave us a Savior King because we are dead without Him. You can trust your life to this One in His hands because He loves you, because He cares for you, because He preserves you even in this very moment from all of the things that you are afraid of most. Will you trust Him? Will you do that? Let's pray.